Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 173, Hypatia of Alexandria, the life and death of a philosopher and her city. This episode follows pretty smoothly on the last episode, where we discussed the power of the fall of Rome as a mnemo-historical event. Many individual events of the long decline and fall of the Western Roman Imperium have lived on as symbolically important. The actual sacking of the city of Rome, which we concentrated on last time, is perhaps the most important of these. But surely the death of Hypatia of Alexandria must feature on any short list of crucial events illustrating the decline and fall scenario on the symbolic level. On the symbolic level, it's nice to have a concrete moment with which to end a historical era. And the murder of Hypatia has been called, for example, by Kathleen Wider in the very first issue of the feminist philosophy journal, Hypatia, has been called, quote, the end of classical antiquity. And just as with the fall of Rome, we discussed last time, the symbolism in cultural memory has largely overwritten what really happened. In this episode, we shall set the record straight a little bit as to what really happened in Hypatia's life, in her death, and in Alexandria at the time. In the following companion episode, we shall discuss the importance of Hypatia and of the events in late antique Alexandria, notably the destruction of the Serapeum and the subsequent Christian rampages through the city, for a number of aspects of the esoteric in late antiquity reflecting on the question of Hypatia's esoteric credentials, the differing Hypatia's born of scholarship, and what her life might have to tell us about the important new forms of esotericism arising in this period. It turns out that Hypatia is difficult to talk about responsibly because our sources have a lot of holes in them, but she is worth the effort because she presents some crucial material for those looking for a detailed history of Western esotericism. And she's also just a fascinating, fascinating figure really worth discussing in any account of the history of late antiquity. Now, Hypatia of Alexandria was a 4th century Platonist philosopher, born somewhere in the range between roughly the years 350 and 370 CE, might even be later, we don't know, who had a specialism in mathematics. And by mathematics, we don't just mean what we mean nowadays by mathematics. We mean basically the whole quadrivium, so arithmetic, geometry, harmonics, and astronomy. She was very good at all that stuff, but that's not all she was good at. She undoubtedly got her mathematical interests from her father, Theon of Alexandria, who lived from around 335 to around 405 CE, and who edited Euclid's Elements, the most widely read textbook in history. Uh, He corrected a lot of the errors that had crept into the text of Euclid, so that's already a huge debt we owe to Theon. But Theon was also an expert on bird divination and probably on astronomy astrology, if the Suda entry on him is to be believed. Many modern scholars have not believed the Suda, seeing a serious problem with this seemingly very conscientious, if plodding, mathematician having dabbled in occult sciences. But we here at the Schwepp are well aware that serious scientific work, as we think of it nowadays, and esoteric interests 
very often go hand in hand to a degree that would shock the hardliners of the white lab coat brigade. But our evidence on Theon is pretty slim, and we're here to talk about his daughter, so we'll just leave it at that. The notes to this episode have a translation of the Suda entry for those interested in reading a little bit more about Theon. As for Hypatia's mother, she doesn't appear in the sources. Now, Hypatia herself, she succeeded her father as Scholarch of a very important Alexandrian Platonist school, seemingly the most important such school in her day. She published a lot of important mathematical work. Uh, much of what she wrote is lost, and really a lot of it does seem to survive, but in various ways, like incorporated into texts of other mathematicians, um, some of it's in Arabic, and we, for the purposes of this podcast, are going to bypass the extremely thorny problems of reconstructing Hypatia's uh, contributions to mathematical science, for the most part. You're welcome. As well as doing all this mathematical work, um, works on conic sections, commentary on the mathematical book of Diophantus, she taught the thought of Plato and Aristotle to a number of important students, including Synesius, the future bishop of Ptolemais, whom we shall be discussing very soon with Professor J. Bregman. Synesius is a very classic example of the esoteric Platonizing Christian. So, her life, the life of Hypatia at the outset, has something to teach us about educational norms in late antique Alexandria. Here's Hypatia, a polytheist Platonist, teaching a mixed crowd of Christians and trads. What's going on there? Actually, all of the students of Hypatia that we know by name uh, are Christian, though we kind of assume she must have had some non-Christian students as well. Anyway, we'll get to that, but for now, we have to talk about her death. It's her death that has really caught the cultural imagination, and it is in her death that Hypatia lives on in cultural memory. She was publicly murdered in ghastly fashion by a mob of frenzied Christian fanatics in the year 415. Indeed, with regard to Hypatia's Nachleben, the ripples that her life sent out down through the history, we are said to say mainly talking not about Hypatia's life, but about her grisly death. This isn't across the board. There is the Journal of Feminist Philosophy called Hypatia, which we mentioned earlier. Hypatia is the earliest female mathematician that we know anything about. And she and her father Theon have both got lunar craters named after them in recognition of their status as significant scientific astronomers. But something about the story of this beautiful female philosopher and teacher being killed by a Christian mob has been so powerful in cultural memory as to have pretty much overwritten the achievements of Hypatia's actual life and work. Now, what does all this have to do with the history of Western esotericism? Well, gentle listener, it has a few important things to do with it. First of all, although the nemo-historical significance of her death has been endlessly refashioned by subsequent generations— so that the actual historical events of her life and death have almost disappeared, there are actually some solid historical data from antiquity, which are worth discussing for our purposes, because they have something to tell us about how late Platonism was evolving, the relationship between late Platonism and esoteric forms of Christianity also evolving at that time, and some other interesting material not entirely foreign to our concerns here at the Schwepp. And we can also take the time to do a bit of clearing out of myths um, the nemo-historical power of Hypatia's death has been so great as to have pretty much overwritten the facts we do know about her life, as we mentioned. But 
the facts are, as usual, more interesting than the mythology. Among the many, many different faces Hypatia has borne in cultural memory, scientific martyr was a popular one in the 18th century, more recently she's become a feminist martyr, and so on, she also currently stands among the canonized or quasi-canonized saints of a number of neo-pagan movements, small but significant. So some knowledge of her actual life and work may be of interest to those who study such movements or to some of the neo-pagans themselves. Secondly, her life and death also tell us a lot about something we haven't spoken of much yet on the podcast, but which it's essential that we cover, namely the increasing imperative in late antiquity for thinkers writing or teaching outside the bounds of the coalescing orthodoxy to use discretion, deception, or other aspects of esoteric expression to stay off the radar of either imperial authorities or just violent Christian neighbors and be able to continue to do what they did. So we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Last but not least, we're talking a lot about late Platonism on the podcast for the simple reason that you absolutely cannot understand the history of Western esotericism without understanding the history of late Platonism. And that means actually understanding it to some degree, not just paying a passing reference to ancient Neoplatonism and Hermeticism and then moving on to the Renaissance Magi of Florence, which is what most uh, books on Western esotericism tend to do. So, of course, we need to cover Hypatia. And, you know, Synesius's short essay on dreams is an absolute treasure house of late antique esoteric Platonist doctrines. But it's a Christian work. Synesius was Hypatia's student, and we really can't pass over that little gem in the history of esotericism without covering Hypatia for that alone, if for no other reason. So let's get on with it. First, the usual note on our sources. We have four major sources for the life of Hypatia. There's actually quite a bit of data scattered here and there through later Christian writers, but we have four major sources, and they're all fairly rubbish. By way of contrast, there's an enormous amount of Hypatia material out there from the, at the time, widely read, super cheesy 1853 novel Hypatia by Charles Kingsley, to the 2009 film Agora by Alejandro Amenabar, which I enjoyed, but which is, from a historical perspective, absolutely silly and also makes Synesius into a Christian fanatic, which is, as we shall see, a very weird uh, choice. Anyway, all of the words attributed to Hypatia in these modern reimaginings of Hypatia, and most of the events depicted, just about everything, in fact, is totally made up. Even the pictures drawn of Hypatia by responsible historians who've looked at the sources vary to a pretty shocking degree, as we shall see next time. And all of this is due to the fact, I think, that the figure of a woman philosopher of late antiquity who was publicly murdered by a Christian mob is just too good to pass up. Again and again, people have succumbed to the urge to fill in the blanks which our scant sources leave. So our sources are the ecclesiastical history of Socrates of Constantinople, no relation to Socrates of Athens, needless to say. This guy is also known as Socrates Scholasticus, meaning the learned one. He is a fairly level-headed Christian chronicler of the 4th to 5th centuries who wrote a continuation of Eusebius's church history down to his own time. He generally has good things to say about Hypatia, even though she's trad. 
he gives a rundown of all the goings-on in Alexandria at the time, which is our best source for the events that we're going to be covering shortly. Our second major source for Hypatia is Damascius, the great, or at least greatly difficult to understand, late Platonists of the 5th to 6th centuries. We shall be covering him in the podcast in his own right. Damascius wrote some extremely abstruse metaphysics. He might have written the most abstruse metaphysics of late antiquity, actually. But he also wrote a work entitled The Life of Isidore, also known as the Philosophical History, because it preserves loads of little potted biographies of the generations of philosophers of the previous centuries, a little bit like uh, Eunapius's book that we've been looking at. It's confusing that this work is always uh, cited by two different titles in English, Life of Isidore and Philosophical History. And when you get to how fragmentary the book is and try to arrange the fragments in some kind of order, it gets even more confusing. However, this is an essential source for the period. This book is often extremely bitchy, and Damascius is not shy about passing judgment about the merits and defects which he sees in all his philosophical predecessors. And that actually limits its uh, usefulness to a degree. Plus, it's preserved only in fragments by Photius and the Suda. But it does preserve some useful information on Hypatia. Damascius thinks she's kind of a second-rate philosopher, but he also makes it clear that her reputation in her day was very high in Alexandria. And he makes it clear that her death was in some ways a major turning point for the cause that Damascius serves, namely polytheist Platonist culture. Different scholars make different things of why Damascius sort of slights her or disses on her, uh, but also kind of reluctantly admits that she was a great philosopher in her day at the same time. And I won't get into all the different conjectures here because I don't quite understand it myself. Thirdly, we have a number of letters from Synesius to Hypatia and several other letters to other people where he mentions Hypatia. His letters tell us that he greatly respected his teacher, Hypatia. Letter 16, written seemingly on his deathbed, is a testament of true philosophic piety and love for his teacher, whom he addresses as, quote, mother, sister, teacher, and benefactress, end of quote. 137, a letter to a fellow student, describes her as presiding over the orgia, the initiatic rites of philosophy. Now, this is a commonplace, but it's also a striking thing for a Christian bishop of Synesius's day to say. Lastly, our fourth main source, we have a religious chronicle by one John of Nikiu, a 7th century Coptic bishop. This guy not only despises Hypatia, he accuses her of having richly merited her ghastly death because she was an evil sorceress who actually was responsible for all the civil unrest which occurred in the late 4th century in Alexandria. We'll come back to Hypatia the sorceress a bit later, but now let's turn to the aforementioned civil unrest. Before we even get to Hypatia's life, we need to talk about what was going on in the Alexandria of her day. And that really starts with the destruction of the Serapeum. One of the big myths, one which is often attached to the life of Hypatia, is that the same Christian mobs who killed the great philosopher also destroyed the great library of Alexandria. Cue narratives of medieval barbarism versus classical rationalism and science, etc., now, this didn't happen. Uh, what seems to have happened here in the sort of cultural memory is that the actual destruction by Christians of the Temple of Serapis in the year 391, about 16 years before Hypatia was killed, so not connected really directly, 
this destruction of the temple was conflated with the idea of the destruction of the great library of Alexandria, and also conflated with the death of Hypatia. You can see how that works symbolically. But the dates don't work, and it didn't happen that way. Here is what happened. There had indeed been a great library of Alexandria known as the Royal Library, which was part of the Museon, the museum. That's where we get the museum from, incidentally. There were many musea in antiquity. This isn't the only one, but this is certainly the most famous. It was, if someone said the Museon, they meant the one at Alexandria. This was an institution founded by the Ptolemies during the culture, prestige, soft power wars of the Hellenistic period. Different Hellenistic kingdoms, notably Pergamum and the Ptolemies of Egypt, were at loggerheads from the 3rd to the 1st centuries BCE over who would have the biggest collection of scrolls, who would have the best scholars and uh, textual critics and translators attached to the staff curating the scrolls. So the Ptolemies, in setting up the Royal Library and the Museon, the library, as far as we can tell, was a sort of storehouse for scrolls that you would access in the Museum. They tried to achieve something sort of comparable to the Americans with the Library of Congress or the British with the British Library, only for Greek. They wanted a copy of every work written in Greek. While they did not achieve this, by all accounts, the Royal Library contained hundreds of thousands of individual works. While the Museon supplied the Greek world with scholarship, with translators of important non-Greek works like, most famously, the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, um, and many other kind of scholarly, kind of analogous to university life type activities. But all this had long become a memory by Hypatia's time. The actual fate of the Museon and its library is actually something of a mystery but the collections seem to have been at least partly destroyed during the Roman Civil War fought between Julius Caesar and Mark Antony when Caesar set the Ptolemaic fleet on fire in the harbor and the flames spread to the city. There's also evidence of further attrition of books, uh, notably during the campaign against Palmyra under the emperor Decius. Decius is bringing Egypt back into the Roman Empire by force and may have burned a couple scrolls along the way. In any case, the, by some accounts, world-beating collection of books, once housed in the Museum and its library, were no longer intact by late antiquity. And the Museum as an institution disappears from our records around the middle of the 3rd century. So it's, it sort of peters out. Whatever happened to the books, uh, the Museum as an institution seemingly just sort of fizzles. So forget about Christians destroying the Great Library of Alexandria. It did not happen. However, at some point... Exactly when is unknown, another large book repository had been set up at the Serapeum, the Temple of Serapis. So there was a major important library in the Serapeum in late antiquity. Hence, I think, the easy conflation of the Great Library's destruction and the destruction of that temple in cultural memory, and in the writing of historical romances. Now, Serapis was an interesting god. Uh, we've occasionally we've occasionally encountered him on the podcast. He appeared to Alias Aristides in dreams. Uh, he appeared in the Isaic procession of Egyptian gods in Book Eleven, I believe, of Apuleius's Metamorphoses. This Greco-Egyptian god had been actively promoted by the Ptolemaic dynasty and had then become very popular throughout the Roman world. His temple at Alexandria had become, in the, th the 380s and 90s, a very important center for polytheist worship and identity. 
And in the year 391, it became the focal point of some serious polytheist resistance to Christian hegemony in Alexandria. Now, there's some dramatis personae for our story. One is the Christian bishop of the city. For this part of our story, this is Theophilus, who served as bishop from 385 to 412. This guy was an active anti-polytheist. He spent a lot of time taunting the pagans, and it was on his watch that the destruction of the Serapeum occurred. As far as we can tell, however, he left Hypatia alone, and she was just quietly teaching throughout his tenure as bishop. More on that next time. Now, another important name here is Orestes. He was the prefect of Egypt, which is like the provincial governor, responsible directly to the imperial court. He knew Hypatia. They certainly worked together in some fashion and seemed to have actually been just friends as well. A third guy is a guy called Olympus. And perhaps the name Olympus was chosen by the gods because it's weirdly appropriate in an ironic way for what this guy got up to. Olympus was a philosopher who arrived in Alexandria from Kilikia. Damascius gives him a brief encomium where we learn that he was noble, wonderful, a delicious speaker, and so on, and that he came to Alexandria to worship Serapis, and he taught his students the old ways of worshiping the gods and how much blessedness such worship would bring to humanity. So he was a sort of active pro-polytheist. He wasn't just a Platonist who happened to be a polytheist. He taught his students chirurgia, according to Damascius, which is temple worship, but almost certainly in the fourth century context, an entrepreneurial form of neo-temple worship. Uh, since, as we know, the traditional Egyptian temple cults had been radically disenfranchised in the course of the third century. And indeed, some dude from Kilikia couldn't rock up in the old days and become a temple priest. There were Egyptians for that, right? So what's going on here is, is some radical uh, new religious movement type stuff. And by chirurgia, Damascius may even mean theurgy. Although for that to be illuminating, we need to know exactly what Damascus means by theurgy. And the podcast will get to that in due course. Anyway, here at this juncture, the gentle listener may recall... Antoninus, the son of Sosipatra of Pergamum, who we discussed in episode 171 with Heidi Marx. Seemingly, hieratic Platonist philosophers were just showing up from parts abroad and setting up at Egyptian temples in this period. Whatever their precise religious practices, this wasn't the old ways, as Damascius puts it, but something radically new, probably something drawing on cultural mythos of the old ways, and perhaps longing desperately for a return to the old ways— but the old ways were gone, as becomes abundantly clear in the denouement. Here's what happened in the words of Edward Watts. Uh, Watts starts from a short discussion of Sosipatra's son, Antoninus, who keen listeners will recall actually prophesied the destruction of the Serapeum, according to Eunapius. Watts interprets Antoninus's quiet life at the mouth of the Nile, doing hieratic rituals uh, in some way, as the, the wise choice. And he takes the case of Olympus, who is something of a firebrand, calling for a polytheist resistance to Christianity, perhaps. He takes him as a counterexample. Quote, Sensing the cavalier attitude of men like Olympus, Antoninus resigned himself to the fact that the group of people assembled at the Serapeum would eventually bring about the destruction of the shrine. This is Watts's interpretation of Eunapius's uh, prophecy. Anyway, unfortunately, Antoninus's intuition was correct. 
In 391, not long after Antoninus's death, a riot broke out in Alexandria when Christian workmen uncovered an old Mithraic temple. They gave some of the cult images they found to the bishop, Theophilus, and he had them mockingly paraded down the streets of the city. In response to this, quote, the pagans of Alexandria, and especially the professors of philosophy, were unable to bear the pain, end of quote. That's Watts quoting Socrates of Constantinople's uh, 5.16. They armed themselves and organized an attack on the city's Christian population. Many Christians were killed before the professors and their gang, which was probably largely made up of their students, retreated to the temple of Serapis. Perched atop the highest hill of the city and surrounded by high walls, the Serapeum made an excellent base for guerrilla operations. It was so secure that the professors and their students were able to wait out a Christian siege and even launch the occasional sortie. They abandoned the position only when they received an imperial amnesty. The leader of these pagan fighters was none other than Olympus. He not only organized the defenses, but also served to buttress the spirits of the defenders. Indeed, Damascius gives a brief but tantalizing hint of what the pagan teachers and students experienced during the siege. Olympus seems to have encouraged them to maintain the vigilant worship of Serapis throughout each day. End of quote. So the polytheists retired from the temple in good order, having been pardoned by a general amnesty, presumably aiming at just keeping the peace, and having done some kind of ceremony removing the god from the temple or sending him off, or retiring him, something like that, deconsecrating the place, to put it in Christian terms. But Serapis was kind of formally removed from his temple, according to Damascius. And then the Christians entered the Serapeum and trashed it, destroying whatever they could. Okay, that was a major event. And in both Eunapius and Damascius, pro-traditional historians of Platonist philosophy, writing after the event, it was a major disaster. For Christians, this was one more step toward freeing the great city of Alexandria from idolatry. But now things get even more extreme in Alexandria. Bishop Theophilus dies in the year 412, and the succession was unclear. Three days of violent street fighting ensued between supporters of uh, Theophilus's nephew Cyril and his archdeacon Timothy. Cyril won and then started settling scores. He persecuted a group of hardliners called the Novationists, not because they were hardliners, but because they had supported Timothy. Then he instructed his followers to attack synagogues and drive Jews from their homes. Now, this was not unprovoked. Apparently, some Jews had set on a group of Christians and there had been some deaths. Um, however, the fact that Cyril thought it was thus okay basically to try to drive the entire uh, Jewish population out of Alexandria was uh, an extreme overreaction, one might say. Orestes, the governor, was appalled by all this violence and wrote to the emperor. But things continued to spiral out of control, and Orestes was badly wounded by one of Cyril's supporters in a riot. Now, when the monk who had started that particular riot later died under torture, Cyril attempted to have him declared a martyr. <laughs> Finally, a group of prominent Alexandrian moderates, seemingly mostly Christians, but at least one trad among them, namely Hypatia, they banded together to force a truce between Cyril and Orestes. So, behind that very bald narrative, 
there was a lot of violence going on. Jews, Christians, polytheists, and native Egyptians dwelling in Alexandria, as, as well as the many other kind of ethnic groups in their neighborhoods, all probably played a part. We don't have nearly enough information here, but I've, even so, I've left out a lot of what we do have. Anyway, what was Hypatia's role in all this? It's a little bit unclear as to the specifics, and scholars read the evidence in different ways, but she seems to have been recruited by Orestes as a prominent, widely respected, and well-connected lady to work for this opposition party, or this group of moderates, or whatever, in trying to bring things back under control. Now, to what degree Orestes saw this as a group of a moderate uh, party, and what degree he saw it as just his party against Cyril is unclear. Anyway, she was called in to calm things down. This is a lady people listen to. If she says everyone calm down and go home, maybe they'll go home. Interestingly, Socrates of Constantinople reports that it was entirely her involvement in this moderate, okay, let's all calm down fellas faction, which led to her death. He doesn't even mention her polytheist religiosity. So at the beginning when I said she was, you know, killed by a mob of fanatical Christians... That's true, but they might not have killed her because she was a polytheist, per se, although I'm sure that helped in the uh, the particular brutality of her death. They might have killed her simply because the boss of their political faction, namely Cyril, had said, kill this woman because she's porting this uh, Christian turncoat, Orestes, who's not the real thing, and blah, 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 and we have to we have to get rid of Orestes. It's, it's unclear. What is clear is that Socrates, like probably most Christians in the 4th century, was not a fanatical, violence-loving thug, and sees this unbelievable civil disorder, and the death of Hypatia in particular, as a hideous tragedy, and uh, something really vile that is, as he specifically says, completely contrary to the spirit of Christianity. However, there were violence-loving thugs around among the Christians. Case in point, Bishop John of Nikiu, a 7th century Coptic bishop, who reports that all of this strife occurred because Hypatia had bewitched Orestes and then bewitched everyone else, and the whole populace was driven mad by her magical arts. Everything, the anti-Jewish rioting, all the civil strife, it was all Hypatia's dark arts. Uh, John is almost certainly reporting on contemporary anti-Hypatia propaganda circulated at the time. Unfortunately, none of that stuff survives. But if we can assume that that's the kind of thing John has picked up, uh, we can possibly assume that it came from Cyril himself. And Cyril of Alexandria is our second case in point for violence-loving Christian thugs. We try not to take sides here at the Schwepp, but this guy Cyril really put the prick into bishopric. For anyone who doesn't believe me, just read his Contra Julianum, a book of invective written against the late lamented Emperor Julian. No further questions, Your Honor. In fact, Socrates of Constantinople, who is a Christian writer, as we have said, pretty much lays the whole affair, which he considers deeply unchristian and disgusting, at the door of Cyril and his fanatical friends, including his uh, personal bodyguard of monks who seem to be absolutely itching for a fight at all times. Now here is Watts again, citing John of Nikiu, this bishop, so this later bishop, reporting anti-Hypatia propaganda, which may or may not come from 
Cyril or the circle around Cyril, the Cyrilist faction. Watts thinks it does, incidentally. Quote, John describes the effect that the rumor, that is, the rumor of Hypatia's magical practices, had on some members of the Christian population. Believing her to have cast these spells, a man named Peter assembled a mob to find Hypatia. When they did so, they brought her to the Caesareum and dragged her through the streets until she died. The crowd then burned her body at the Cineron, a place outside of the city. Finally, we are told the people of the city all glorified Cyril as a new Theophilus, for he has destroyed the last remains of idolatry in the city. The last statement, with his mention of Theophilus and the elimination of paganism, is clearly an allusion to the general spirit of rejoicing that swept through the Christian community following the destruction of the Serapeum in 391, end of quote. Now, this is all pretty disgusting and worrying. It's never good when people celebrate a lynching. But we should remember our context. Alexandria. Way back when, when we introduced Philo of Alexandria in episode 56 of this podcast, we mentioned that Philo had been sent on a mission to the Emperor Gaius to plead the case for the Jews of the city, who'd been attacked by their traditional neighbors. The fact is, Alexandria was just one of those cities in antiquity which is highly susceptible to mob violence between the different groups that lived there. It just broke out from time to time. It was notorious for it. A huge amount of the sources about uh, ancient Alexandria mention this. Jews were very often at the receiving end of it, but history shows us that the Alexandrian Jews could also give as good as they got. And meanwhile, the rise of what seemed to have been two particularly nasty Christian bishops, Theophilus and then Cyril, perhaps part of the explanation of this particularly violent spate of acts of barbarism carried out by Christians during this period, from about 390 to 415, when Hypatia was killed. Also, when we think of monks nowadays, I think a lot of folks tend to think of very peaceful people, the polar opposite, in fact, to armed bands of urban guerrillas doing house-to-house kill missions. Not so in late antique Egypt. <laughs> the monks of Cyril's personal retinue, aptly called by Watts his goon squad, were notoriously spoiling for a fight and were, in fact, murderous thugs for Jesus. Where, oh where, are the days of Philo, Clement, and Origen? where peaceful coexistence and an esoteric hermeneutic, which actually allowed these Abrahamic thinkers to transcend the narrow bounds of literalism and embrace wisdom wherever it was found. Where are those days? Well, strangely enough, gentle listener, those days are actually not gone, uh, despite the shocking violence perpetrated by the faction supporting Cyril of Alexandria. Saint Cyril of Alexandria. For it is he, sadly... Cyril is now considered a pillar of Orthodox theology and a saint in a number of mainstream Christian denominations. Despite the shocking violence, polytheists and Christians would go on living, working, and doing philosophy together in Alexandria for another 200 years or so. Indeed, Egypt in late antiquity seems to have been a land of extremes in many ways. Think of the Orthodox fanaticism represented by Cyril's monks Active repression, active assassination, active expropriation in the name of a certain interpretation of Christianity existing cheek and jowl with all manner of heretical deviants. Think whoever the monks were who compiled the Nag Hammadi Gnostic Library. These are both groups of Egyptian monks. And in among it all, one of the final flowerings of late ancient Platonist philosophy took place in the ensuing centuries. So... 
Why then did we subtitle this episode, The Life and Death of a Philosopher and Her City? Obviously, Alexandria didn't die. And indeed, polytheist philosophy didn't even die. Well, I feel that with the fall of the Serapeum, even more in a way than with Hypatia's death, something of the old Alexandria did die. Eunapius, Damascius, and probably every single traditionally religious Alexandrian certainly saw it that way. And the Christian mobs of Alexandria seem to have seen it that way too, only they thought it was a good thing. So this is one of those kind of um, important events in history that on the one hand, my instincts tell me that we should clear up and uh, debunk the myths about to some degree. But on the other hand, I think it is really important, if only for the effect it had on the immediately subsequent generations, both of Christians and traditionalists. On that somber note, we bid farewell to Hypatia, but not for long, because she will return in the very next episode, where we're going to reflect on some of the many interpretations her life and work have inspired. Uh, Was she, as Damascius implies, a mere geometer? Or was she, as her student Synesius's work implies, a more esoteric thinker? And if she was an esoteric thinker, what does this tell us about new forms of the esoteric arising in late antiquity under the pressure of persecution? It tells us a lot, gentle listeners, so join us next time for that. In the meantime, let us hope that the soul of Hypatia rests easy, perhaps in the Rimae Hypatiae, a region of the moon named after her, and located, one hopes appropriately, along the Mare Tranquillitatis, the Sea of Tranquility. Until next time, be like Hypatia's inner doctrines, and stay esoteric. Stay esoteric.